Blog Talk Radio. There are obviously tens of thousands of innocent people currently languishing in prison in the United States. And so the Innocence Project is in a race against time. Time. They say criminals should be locked in prison, but they living in a big house that's white. It's not right. We gotta fight. They don't lock up corporate criminals that ruin the planet. Jails filled with nonviolent offenders, and it's tragic. Mistreated, got treated how they treated like animals. Corporations invading countries like cannibals for capital. The actual conditions in prison they meant for living. It's like torture they give it with night fights and listeners. Rehabilitation or correction or direction is corruption. They got gangs. They can stop the way it's running. Inmates coming out worse. They immersed in dysfunction. Prison abolition is written on by they gotta stop the problems in prison, get driven and change it. Societal conditions causing equality and robbery. Technology is something that's not distributed across to America. One can afford the right lawyer's price. The other goes to jail for like 25 to life. Not given rehabilitation and incarceration. The United States is the only democracy on this planet that executes its prisoners. There is still the idea that if you've been arrested, you did something. It's no escape. It's all about profit. No stopping rape in this place. They give no contraception for protection. So you know AIDS is spread and infected with no discretion. Never gave reparations for slavery and bad habits. It's packed with mostly blacks and Hispanics. It's riddled with a lot who got time that's innocent. I start to explain with the hurricane's pain. It's a shame. There's so much racism in the system. Daryl Hunt was innocent but served 20 years of prison. His innocence was presented with DNA evidence. Similar things often happen. It happened to Charles Chapman. It happened to Alton Logan. There's so many we don't know. And until we've been calling for them to let Mamiya go and Mandela the 27 in a place that's like the opposite of heaven. Rockefeller drug laws was used as a weapon in deception of detention. How come these men are free? Free. Free. Because DNA testing proved that they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. Discrimination in the past readily is left present. Evidently, you can see they should end the death penalty. Yeah. They ready with the facts and what happened to Aaron Patterson. The Innocence Project helps the innocent to shackle it. Movie after innocence, after you witness it, you see the significance of changing the whole system. It's the real Shawshank Redemption that needs attention. To a pile of marijuana should be locked in detention. Yeah. These inmates rot the food, make them stay in high tent. Cops get take orders from this demonic sheriff's death. Many inmates on death row was exonerated, showing the penalty of death can't be tolerated. Have the right funds, get the records expunged. It's a fund of insanity, a system that had to be changed up dramatically. Factually, it's actually one of the worst ways of not acting democratically. Torture is solitary, prisoner abuse is not very conducive to solutions. It's quite the contrary. It's way too overcrowded, but do they care? I doubt it, because it's not about logic. It's that they pocket in the property. Because you're actually nothing. All you are is something locked in a cage back and forth every day. In actuality, all our family should be up here with us because they all suffer. For every one of us up here, there's hundreds more in prison that don't belong here. Everything in life is wonderful, and then one day, somebody comes up to a lie on you and you end up in jail. I had to fight despite lawyers. Despite prosecutors who tried to destroy evidence, I had to fight, I had to fight, I had to fight, I had to fight. My mom and dad spent over $150,000 on lawyer fees. That was their retirement money. And I'm not just trying to get compensation for me. I'm trying to get compensation for the guys that come out before me, for the guys that's going to come out after me. You see, this is my reason, my reason. Hey, when you see any justice, you must step up and do something about it. And that's what we're trying to do out here now. This is Lee, and I am your host on the Injustice System. That music, the truth, T H A T T H A T R U T H, is he is the man who did this record. The record is called the Injustice System. Now, I'm not a big fan of rap. Some rap I do like. I like his rap. Because his rap tells you the way it is. And the injustice system is very unjust. So, what what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to let people know how bad things are. I do know that 
I could get in trouble for some of it. There's some people out there that don't want you to know how things really are. I think I mentioned last week uh, Les Sachs, who is a journalist that had to leave the country and seek asylum in Belgium because he told the truth. And the government tried very hard to get him back so they could put him in prison. And the word was that they were going to try and kill him. So there are a lot of horror stories about the justice system. I got an email from a lady a while ago, not too long ago, and I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, this woman was crazy. The more I read, the more I thought, yeah, she probably is crazy, driven crazy by the system. But a lot of what she's saying is probably true. So I'm looking into this system, and I am going to do what I can to let people know the truth. One problem is that people don't really care. And I hope that the more they find out, the more they decide, gee, maybe I should care. Maybe I should do something about it. If you go to the blog section of my show page, you will find and that I have three petitions in there, all, had, all for the president because Congress and the state legislatures don't care. Hey, maybe the president might care. I don't know. The president is black. Well, actually, he's mixed. But He's not a black president. He's a president for the people. And that I feel that all these innocent people in prison need to be released. And he may be able to do something about it. I feel that the death penalty should be abolished. And I know he can do something about that. He can get everybody off the death row with a stroke of, well, a few hundred strokes of the pen. But, and something has to be done about the prison abuse, police brutality. People are killed by the cops who aren't doing the thing wrong. So something has to be done. And Congress won't do anything. I think there's a lot that the president can do. And hopefully Congress will do their job and do something about it. We need to get rid of the corruption in our justice system. Corruption that sends innocent people to prison. And you would be surprised how many innocent people are in prison. I'm on the bet that there's close to 400 innocent people in prison. But today, I'm going to tell you about Leanne Benson. Leanne may take a couple shows. He wrote me, and he sent me some information. 
uh, are his writings. I got three of them: the Battle Cry of Innocence, which I'm going to go through today. And if time runs out on the show, I'm going to keep it going until I finish it, and then and we can, you know, you can pick up the show on, on my show page and play it there or download it and you can skip towards the end so that but the thing is the truth also that is true is usually I don't have any listeners but people do go to my show page and listen to it after it's been on the air But anyway, Leon Benson. Let's see if I can figure out where he is real quick. Yep, Leon is in Carlisle, Indiana. Leon Benson, number 995256. WBCF, P.O. Box 1111. Carlisle, Indiana, four eight, excuse me, four seven, eight three eight. I do believe I checked to make sure he was still there. Well, here's what I want: his battle cry of innocence. In the vortex of sudden tornadoes in the land of perpetual prison pain, confined in the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility Security Housing Unit, within the cell in the cell of 23 hours a day, an innocent man of dignity and apex integrity dwells. It was July of 1999. And then 23-year-old Leon Benson was nefariously falsely convicted of a crime he absolutely did not commit, nor had any involvement in whatsoever. Now Leon Benson is propelled in the battle, uh, the perpetual, perpetual woes of the nefarious injustice system. With all odds against him, this is Leon Benson's Battle Cry of Innocence, July 12, 2003. Weighing the evidence is a means by which conclusion can be made. A wise man or woman, therefore, directs their belief to the evidence. David Hume said that. This hurricane of inequity and matters began in the wee hours of the morning of August 8, 1998. When I was socializing with residents of Priscilla Apartments located 1309 North Pennsylvania Street, downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, due to building's high crime history, and poor living conditions. People from the area referred to the same building by the name of Little Vietnam. Blurred by intoxication from any from my consumption of alcohol, I personally never could recall the exact time or my exact position in the building in the hallways is when lit firecracker sounds occurred that night. These sounds seemed to come from outside the building. It was an end. Everyone paused in the hallway for, for a second or two and went back to socializing after the sound ceased.
sounds were too alarming, weren't too alarming at the time of the year. Fireworks were still going off. Spontaneously after the 4th of July, I do recall seeing several individuals at the time of the firecracker sounds. A woman by the name of Shirley Gaskin, a young man by the name of Timothy Gaither, and several other individuals. Gaskin and Gaither were the only two witnesses willing to come and testify on my behalf at the trial. Many people were afraid to get involved out of fear of the police or I just couldn't locate them. I truly didn't have any reason in, in particular to remember anyone that night of the firecracker sounds, that the firecracker sounds until a week later on August 14, 1998. While inhaled of marijuana and consuming alcohol, I was talking to Shirley Gaskin front of the apartment building on New Jersey Street at 13th, just around the corner from where the fatal crime took place just a week before. One after two male acquaintances of Shirley left their presence. Then soon the, the LPD, the IPD, arrested us both. I had a warrant for a violation of probation, so I assume Gaskin had a warrant as well. As we were placed in separate police cars, and then we were taken to the, the IPD headquarters, which was basically right down the street. Once at the police station, I was taken into a small room with a table and chairs. Police handcuffed my left arm to a metal ring on the wall. Due to my intoxication, I rested my head on my right arm on the table. As soon as I fell fast asleep, hours or minutes later, I truly don't know, I was boldly awakened by homicide detectives Al Jones and L.A. Van and Buskirk and audaciously accused of a murder that occurred on August 8, 1998 on 14th and Pennsylvania Street. I immediately snapped out of my sleeping at days and adamantly denied any personal knowledge or involvement in the hideous crime. I was irrational due to my absolute innocence with no lawyer present, no evidence of any type of police interrogation in my life. And while being functionally illiterate, of law procedure, I immaturely waived my rights and naively gave these detectives a statement for my blaring recollections, placing myself in the area of the crime because of the building I was in the night of the pop sounds. Since I confidently, confidently had absolute innocence on my side, why not explain to the detectives what I heard and while I, while I was in the building? Major misconception on my part. This is when my entire mental capacity was shattered to near oblivion upon a detective telling me, we have two eyewitnesses who identify you as the shooter in the murder. Seconds later, I was charged with the offense. A uniformed police officer immediately forced me to relinquish my sky blue Nike running shoes off my feet 
as well as my white blue Pele Pell sweatpants. Claiming that they needed them for gunpowder testing, which were negative. And they placed me in the county jail barefooted with an orange jail jumpsuit convicting me on set. This is a big mistake. Y'all have the wrong man, I declared. Repeatedly at the top of my lungs. Still unconvincing and the real inhuman tragedy that would burn in my soul like scorching hot spoon permanently in the months that followed. Donald Brooks is one of the two witnesses the detective stated identified me. Brooks gave Detective Jones a statement on August 15, 1998, just one day after my arrest. Also, Shirley Guskin informed Brooks he himself was a suspect in the crime. In Brooks' statement, he says that he was lying down at his cousin's apartment when he saw Detroit, a.k.a. Leon Benson, running southeast down Pennsylvania Street towards the Priscilla Apartments. While several individuals run north down the street, Brooks said it was good and vigorously conflicted. It was good possibility Detroit committed the crime. This entire statement, this imposter witness gave was coerced and vigorously conflicted with all the evidence. Artificial and blemished fellowship When Donald Brooks, a middle-aged convicted robber, parole violator, imposter of truth, testified not only at one but two trials that he was unable to describe any clothing worn by any of the many individuals he claimed to have seen on the scene. And then repulsively, Brooks lost all memory about any events that he conveyed to Detective Alan Jones. At the trial, prosecutor Randy Head was infuriated by the state's own witness. However, the transparent coercion while on the witness stand that he Diminished Brooks and other disgust. Dismissed Brooks and other disgust. Christy Smith, the second witness, a star newspaper delivery woman, and the state's material eyewitness gave Detective L.A. Van Buskert a statement on August 8, 1998, just 30 or 40 months after the crime. In Christy Schmidt's statement, she said she had just begun her route as she was approaching the newspaper vending box located in the northwest corner of 14th and Pennsylvania Street. When she noticed a black pickup truck pulled up over just south of the intersection on the west side of the street facing south, her attention was compelled to the illuminated taillights of the truck. As Schmidt began the vending machine, she heard three or four pops like firecrackers. When she looked to her up her left, which was south in the direction of the sounds. She then observed a black male 
standing on the passenger side of the truck on the sidewalk. The shooter turned in Smith's direction and walked north to the end of the truck's bed, turned back around and walked to the cab of the truck, pointed a gun into the passenger side of the window and fired two more shots into the truck's cab. Schmidt said she had seen the flash from the muzzle of the gun in the last two shots. Then the shooter began walking quickly south down the sidewalk, and, and he reached the lot of Damon Center. He got west, running through the parking lot from the scene. Schmidt then left from the vending box where she was loading the papers to go to her vehicle, which was 10 feet apart. Now, in her vehicle, she proceeded to call 911 on her cell phone, but she got no response. Then she drove south down Pennsylvania Avenue, passing the back of the truck in the Damon Center lot. Schmidt said that they, they were too far away to identify. After two blocks away from the scene, she finally made contact with 9-11. Schmidt returned to the black truck about 10 minutes later where she met black woman Cheryl King, who also called 9-11. They then awaited the police to arrive together. Schmidt said that although the shooter did not stand in the street light on the corner, she felt that her headlights were illuminating the scene enough she could possibly identify the shooter. Kirsty Smith described the shooter as follows. African-American male, early mid-twenties, dark-complected, five feet eight, skinny build, black t-shirt, black baggy sweatpants, with three stripes down the leg, short hair, possibly no facial hair, and dark tennis shoes. A witness by the name of Carol Knight stated to the police, Leon Benson was wearing stone-washed blue jeans, a blue shirt with an emblem on it, and a jacket. This testimony was never co contradicted in the trial. Look at the actual police scene diagrams and correlates each witness's statement but of the actions by the suspect. Also, please keep in mind that a light-complected African-American male, 5'10", look at my photo and the introduction. His photo will be on the uh, website, on my website, conveyed by the actual police scene diagram made by Officer Harley. The distance between the tailgated truck and the vending box Christy Smith was loading was approximately 146 feet 7 inches, which is roughly 49 yards half the football field. This distance alone Is immensely unreliable identification evoking, evoked by Christy Smith's decision to choose an innocent man out of a photo array lineup one week after the crime occurred. On the day of my arrest, August 14, 1998, I was in police custody. Why wasn't I placed in the lineup? Statistically reported by Amnesty International, African-American defendants, when identified by Caucasian victims and witnesses from a photo array lineups, are the highest defendants who are misidentified and falsely convicted. Also, I truly believe that detectives and prosecution coerced Smith 
to deceive justice and bold contradictions of Smith's testimony aptly supported by my direct dialectical conclusions. Second trial, which resulted in a hung jury, six not guilty, one undecided, five guilty, never once was a motive established for this crime, nor was there any physical DNA evidence connecting me to the crime. To this insane act either in a new trial. Spent unreliably unreliable identification and uncollaborated conflicting testimony was only evidence against me. Smith gave Detective L.A. Van Buskirk a statement that the night of the crime, and then Detective Jones a tape recorded statement a week later, and also an oral de- deposition under oath on 326 1999. Sporadically, while testifying in the second trial, Schmidt emerged with the most conflicting apex dubious state testimony laced with notorious fallacy. It was completely unheard of in any of the three prior statements given by Schmidt. Testimony I'm providing to you with today <coughs> actual trial transcript records verbatim. Prosecutor Randy has direct examination of Smith's <coughs> question. And what did you do with the cell. As soon as I got in the vehicle, answer, as soon as I got in the vehicle, I called 911. <clears throat> Question, were you able to get through at the time? Answer, no. Question, why did you want to drive your vehicle at that point? Answer, afraid that if the shooter came back around the building for some reason, I didn't want to be standing right there for my own personal safety. (coughs) Question. What side of the street were you on at the time you drove past the truck? Answer. At that time, I drove past the truck. I was right next to it. I proceeded to go across the lane of traffic on the opposite side of the road. Question, what did you see further south of the truck? Answer, a gentleman that fired the shots was walking on the sidewalk. He proceeded to look towards me. We made eye contact, and then he proceeded to run through the Davis Center lot. And the three statements prior statements in the trial and one trial Schmidt was standing at the vending box until the shooter ran away from the scene through the lot. <coughs> Question Ms. Schmidt is a person who fired those shots in the courtroom today? Answer Yes sir. Question Can you point him out to the jury and describe what he's wearing? Answer, a gentleman in a blue shirt and tie. Prosecutor, Your Honor, may the record reflect that the witness was identified as defendant Leon Benson. The judge, yes. Question, now at some time, you gave a statement to Detective Jones concerning the incident. Is that correct? Answer, yes. Question. And do you remember how you described the shooter's complexion? 
answer. I said he was fairly dark. Question. Do you see the person you've just identified as a shooter in this courtroom? Answer, yes. Uh-huh. Can you take a look at him, Benson, for me? How do you complexion do you sit there? Answer, fairly light, light complexion. Question, I guess the person you identified, identified as shooter is not fairly dark, correct? Answer, correct. This is the 21st century. Not a courtroom in the old Confederate American South in the 1800s, such as unjust dynamic, should not exist in our present civilization society. Was that testimony civilized? Now, I would like to present the many times Schmidt impeached through my trial lawyer, did so very meek and passively. Still, Smith's far-fetched account of the events was divulged. Trial attorney Timothy Miller's cross-examination of Smith. Question. Now, when you were on the west side of the street, there's a newspaper vending box. You were filling that box when you heard shots. Is that right? Answer, yes. Question, okay. Your testimony is that it was misty. Answer, yes, sir. Question. In the same statement to Detroit L.A. Van Beskert, do you recall him asking you what first drew your mind to the attention of the shooter? What you noticed about the shooter? Answer, yes, sure. Question, what was your answer? Answer, the clothing. Question, and these memories were fresh in your memory at the time. Is that right? Answer, yes. Mm -hmm. Question. And also, you describe the shooter as being dark complexed. Answer, yes, sir. My personal comment, maybe you have some tent. Before I continue with this, though, I do want to say that white people just are not good witnesses when it comes to black people. By the same token, black people aren't good witnesses against white people. Uh, it has to be known that we are unreliable against people of a different race when it comes to being a witness against them. So what do you do if you're on the jury? Well, in this case, it looks definitely like She was lying at one point. Question. Do you recall saying that you couldn't identify the shooter, but you could recognize his clothing? Answer. No, sir. See this bold contradiction? Question. So if someone else were to testify that you did 
It's your belief that they would be mistaken. Answer, yes, sir. This is an excerpt from Cheryl King's trial testimony much later in the proceedings. Ms. King is a compassionate woman who called 9-11 also and waited with Schmidt until the police arrived at the scene. Question. Now, my question to you is, did you hear the woman Schmidt who had gotten out of the van say something regarding the shooter. Answer, she said, no, I couldn't see the face of the shooter. All I know is that he had on sweats and a hooded shirt. Question. I think we're back to Ms. Schmidt. Do you remember a statement after the shooting took place that you saw the shooter come toward you and turn around, walking and breaking into a run, going behind the Damien Center? Answer, yes. Question, do you also remember making a statement that you were driving you saw the shooter running behind the Damon Center. Answer, yes, I was passing the parking lot to the Damon Center. Question, so it's your testimony that the shooter was running behind the Damon Center both times when you were still at the vending box and then after took time to get in your van and proceed south on Pennsylvania. Answer, no, sir. This dubious testimony is what convicted an innocent man. Question, so it's your testimony that what you meant by your statement was that the shooter did not get into the streetlight? Answer, yes, sir. Question, you didn't tell Detective Van Busker that that night, did you? Answer, no, sir. Before Clint stepped off the stand, juror submitted a question to the judge, to ask Schmidt. And from the question, you'll realize a very colossal problem after hearing all the contradictions by Schmidt. They should have had an illogical conclusion. Judges question Schmidt on a juror's tenure question. Question. Okay, did you make eye contact with the shooter as you drove south on Pennsylvania Street? Answer, yes. <coughs> Question, did the defendant then start to run? Answer, yes. Schmidt was impeached again after that testimony. Why would the jurors ask such a question after hearing such obvious contradictions? How could a jury convict anyone on this basis? The vertex of the jurors' confusion was my trial lawyer not presenting police diagram of the scene. Mr. Miller decided to bring a vital evidence in much too late in the trial. And Mr. Miller's total cross-examination of Schmidt was only seven pages compared to 23 pages of the direct exam by the prosecutor head. So, basically, truth was smothered because of my trial lawyer's meekness. Police diagram is the same one I provided with you today.
Yeah, I don't really know that I have that diagram. This would have given the jurors actual distance and exposed the scientific that it was impossible for Schmidt to move 50 yards at past. After a myriad opportunity to present this evidence while Schmidt was on the stand, this sham artist didn't provide this evidence on purpose. Thirty days before the first trial, my trial lawyer brought me a statement of an eyewitness who identified someone else as a shooter in the crime. After being condemned to the Marion County Jail to await trial for months now, this news made me sigh in jubilation. This statement was dated August 17th, 1998, three days after my arrest. Why was I in jail awaiting trial for a crime I absolutely did not commit? And why was I just now receiving such vindicating evidence? I would know the answer some years later to these personal questions. The unlocated witness, Dakari C. Fulton, gave the lead detective Jones a voluntary tape recorded statement on July 17, 1998. Mr. Fulton stated, as he was on his way to the Shell gas station, he was walking on the side of the building on Pennsylvania Street along the trial pathway. Upon reaching the sidewalk on the east side of Pennsylvania Street, Fulton said he remembered seeing the black Dodge Ram truck sitting on the west side of Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the Damien Center. Next thing he knew, gunfire rang out. Fulton then said that he had seen a shooter walk to the bed end of the truck, then turn around and walk back to the truck's cab for two more shots on the passenger side of the truck's cab. And then the shooter walked at a fast pace north on the sidewalk until reaching Damien Lot, where he cut west through the lot, running from the scene. Fulton told Detective Jones that he recognized the person who did the shooting because of the clothes that he had on. Black shirt, black jogging pants with three stripes down the leg. Also, Fulton said he had seen the same person an hour or so earlier waving a gun around. Fulton said he had to tell the person to stop waving the gun around that way because it ain't no telling when it could go off. I had a friend who was shot that way. Fulton described the handgun as a 380 automatic. When asked by lead Detective Alan Jones, question, how do you know it was a 380? Or what makes you believe it's 380? Answer, well, because I've seen the same gun. I had the same gun before. i done seen a few of them in my life, enough to know them on sight. Question, so you use your own, to, use to own a gun similar to the kind, is that correct? Answer, Oh, yeah. I guess this, it was a carbon copy. Dakari Fulton went on to make positive identification of the shooter, who also was the same person waving the 380 handgun. 
Also, there were two Crime Stopper reports that were aired. One report said Joseph Webster, Webster is connected to the murder that occurred on 14th in September on Pennsylvania Street. And Webster had recently released from Juvenile Hall. The second report said Joseph Westberg used a 380 handgun in the murder and a gun belonged to his girlfriend, Letitia Shepard. Also, the second report said Letitia Shepard had reported to the police a missing 380 automatic handgun three days prior to the shooting. In addition, the lead detective Alan Jones confirmed Letitia Shepard <coughs> got a report to the police. Please let me let the following facts engross your attention. Joseph Webster is the same person Dakari Fulton identified as a shooter. An IPD recovered the 380 shell casings at the scene of the crime. Tragically, the innocent victim, Casey Sheehan, was killed by bullets from a 380 auto handgun that fatal night. Why, with all the evidence pointing toward Webster, would detectives turn their heads and pursue Leon Benson? There is a multitude of consolidated covert nefariousness that helped conceive this injustice, not only against me and my family, or the victim and his family, but against all of us who believe in justice. <coughs> After receiving the trial transcripts, November 15, 2002, Three and a half years after my incarceration in 1999, <coughs> I had an epiphany that infuriated me immensely upon discovering that my trial lawyer, Timothy J. Miller, held vital evidence for me for three and a half months. Mr. Miller received the Gary Fulton statement and the Crime Topper Report, January 19, 1999. And this information wasn't divulged to me until April 1999, <coughs> just 30 days before the first trial. Then everything started to put itself in perspective of why this crime and itself was inflicted on me. Timothy J. Miller, crucially undetermined to the trial outcome, Miller didn't call the officer who constructed the crime scene diagram. Arlington to testify at the trial. Our Detective Ellie Van Busker, who interviewed Christy Schmidt 30 to 40 minutes after the crime took place. Timothy Gaither was excluded from testifying in a second trial by Miller without my knowledge until the middle of the trial. Miller never held one evidentiary hearing in the concerns of Christy Schmidt uh, identification, which is by law unreliable just by distance alone. Miller did not investigate or prepare for the trial, and his trial performance was very meek towards the prosecution. Miller made too many simple mistakes, which leads me to believe that he was working with the prosecution. 
This case is not a complicated one at all. Miller was the vital chess piece that compelled false conviction on me, an innocent man. He thought that echoes in my mind oftentimes is that I paid this sham artist of a lawyer nearly $15,000 to help railroad me to prison. Due to overtly incompetent legal representation, corruption, racism, my social economic status, functional illiteracy to the judicial system, being from Michigan with almost no family support, plus the city of Indianapolis having still an all-time record high of homicide. 168 homicides in 1998 with not only the Schoen family but countless other family members of lost victims with local media frenzy evoked profound pressure on the entire Indianapolis Police Department and the prosecutor's office to bend closer to the many unsolved homicide cases by producing more arrests and convictions that was all weighed against me in the trial and that was not mine. So, state of Indiana only concern was bringing closure to the murder case. If that meant anything the conviction of an innocent man instead of the true perpetrator of the inhumane act. All facts I conveyed to you today are propelled, illogical, irrational, unscientific, absurd, fallacious, guilty verdict that tragically sent me to prison for 60 years. It's very sad that a father of two beautiful children has to spend his life battling relentlessly for liberation that was embezzled from him in the first place. I don't only want justice for me, but also for the victim, Casey Schoen, who has suffered deaths. It is understandable that Casey's family to harbor animosity, but it is a sin when it is aimed at the wrong person. I still remember Sean's family death wishes toward me. This used to be anger me, but I recognize that they themselves were deceived by individuals who were sworn to uphold the law. I'm going to continue with this so that you can have it on uh, uh, on my show page. Uh, I still found ways to keep growing and understanding what life has to offer. I've come to believe that all of our struggle, disappointment, pain, betrayal, and injustice, admiration, love, and joy, and aspiration, friendship, anger, justice, and war we experience in our lives is what makes us who we are. Through its immensely hard, not to be bitter in my current circumstance, but I'm not because the world doesn't owe me nothing. Because I'm an innocent in prison, but I do owe myself an edu- education, determination, discipline, and perseverance that I have within my heart and soul transcended over the injustice. Unfortunately, is not enough. I need your help. So, 
I think that I can continue with this, even though I'm not on the air anymore. My direct appeal was denied, and since then, I have filed a PCR appeal with the Indiana Public Pretender's Office. At this point, is by the way, that Pretender's is in quotes because it's is a defender's office. But they are pretenders to defenders. At this point of my legal endeavors, I truly have no trust in the Indiana injustice system. I'm sure that you can understand why. My writing finger literally has callous from all the places I have written all the 50 states declaring my innocence while asking for assistance. But nothing has happened. I've gotten a lot of responses telling me why they can't help me. There are several innocent project directors respond sarcastically by saying, we only take cases where individuals are actually innocent. What? How could they think that I was playing some diabolical game? Could a guilty person have the length, strength to convey such unadulterated truth step by step that I have today? All I need is a helping hand to help myself. The truth has been myself, my strength protection and guiding star that illuminates the darkest moments of this eclipse of justice. The fallacy will diminish in the presence of truth. Truth is a perpetual fact of the universe. Truth is knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of Egyptian mysteries discovered after the millennium, buried under the desert sands. In my case, I have the duration on my side. Every day I wake in prison, buried under a, a lost piece of my existence. I immediately need assistance, archaeologists of justice, to dust away the sands of injustice and imprison my existence on earth. My name is Leanne Benson. This is my battle cry of innocence, seeking justice. I would like to extend my sincerest appreciation and gratitude to Kajapalm, Lita Grace, and many other individuals absolutely innocent. I especially must thank Lee Gaylord, the founder of the Castle Hope for Lost Souls. Without his updated assistance, nothing today would be would be possible. How you can assist Leon's exoneration? Share your skills in public speaking, networking, vital information, writing, designing, art, making copies, exposing story of Leon to the media. Download the Battle Cry of Innocence and send it different foundations and organizations. Show the battle cry of innocence to your local youth and your community and bring apex awareness about the U.S. injustice system. Speak about Leon's story at the community events. Direct friends and family to our websites. Challenge people who salute tough crime or tort and don't have true information or knowledge of the exploitation of poor individuals in the United States. Participate in events and rallies expose the greed and exploitation of the prison industry. Or you can write Leon directly and ask questions. All legal experience is needed. And if you have this Please 
Share your ideas and exonerate Leon Benson. Finding, giving, and sharing support and help others will accelerate Leon's exoneration. Learn more about the wrongful incarceration. I'm only one story of the many people before me and possibly after me. If you don't take adamant action against the nationwide epidemic of bogus, false, and wrongful incarcerations in this country, there are 2.6 million people currently incarcerated in the United States. And how many of these innocent victims are adequately nepotism, racism, discrimination from the corrupt justice system? Maybe former Illinois Governor George Ryan can answer the question for you because he realized the high probability of innocent people were and 167 death row inmates in Illinois. He granted clemency to permanently stopping their executions. Organize people in your community to demand justice for the wrongfully convicted. You are the hope. Never give up the struggle. If I know uh, anything at all, it's that the wall is a wall. Nothing more at all. It can be broken down. Sada Shakur. I hope someone can help Leon. I'm going to put this on the blog too. So if you don't feel like listening to me say it, you can see it. Leon is a good man who has been railroaded by the state of Indiana. Thank you. And... I hope you have a good evening.